the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. Wisdom is proved right by your actions. It doesn't matter what people think of you. What matters is the life that you are living and the legacy that you will leave. That's what matters. That's what really ultimately defines you. It doesn't merely matter what other people say. It's the life that you live for the glory of God. It's the fruit that you produce in honor of the Lord. Well, in verse 20, it says, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. In today's message, Pastor Gary will remind you that Christians will have struggles in this world. Part of those struggles will be mocking. Christians will be and are mocked for their faith. People will say that God doesn't exist or that God is outdated. What people say doesn't matter. What matters is the legacy that we leave behind for the kingdom of God. If someone ridicules you, no one will remember in a few weeks. But if you evangelize someone and they come to Christ, that will be celebrated for many years to come. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. We left off in the middle of chapter 11 of Matthew, right around verse 16. And leading up to verse 16, Jesus had made a statement concerning John the Baptist. And we're going to notice that between chapters 11 and 12, Jesus makes four comparative statements about himself. The first of which we find back here in chapter 11, verse 11, where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And I pointed out to you last week that uh, some Bible commentaries were right, that that is a reference to New Testament Christians that because John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though we read of him in the New Testament, New Testament just means New Covenant. Old Testament means Old Covenant. And John the Baptist was a prophet under the Old Covenant because his ministry was before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That makes him the last of the Old Covenant prophets. And some will interpret what Jesus says here to mean that Christians, New Testament saints, those of us under the New Covenant, are greater than John the Baptist because he was under the Old Covenant. But when you look closely, really, that's not what Jesus is saying because Jesus says, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, is greater than he. And there was only one who was really least in the kingdom of heaven, and that would be Jesus, that he became least, that he humbled himself and became obedient to the cross. 
that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You talk about leastness, and this is one of the great paradoxes of the Bible. You know, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. If you want to be a uh, leader, you must be a servant of all. Uh, Jesus then referring, of course, to himself here, he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And so what he was saying in effect is that he's more than a great prophet, that he, Jesus, is greater than John the Baptist because his ministry and his life far exceeds that of the great prophet John the Baptist. Uh, Not a reference really to us as New Testament saints, but rather a reference to himself. And then Jesus in chapter 12 is going to give us three more comparative statements that if we have time, we'll look at tonight, if not tonight, in the following weeks. But this is where we left off then at verse 16. Jesus then continues and he says, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now this is a saying, and Jesus is talking in modern terms, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. Just right in the margin of your Bible, a wedding. A wedding. It's a reference to a wedding, that they would play the flute, and um, that's where you would normally dance. But in this case, Jesus is saying that this wedding saying is that we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Right off in the margin of your Bible, a funeral. Jesus making two statements about a wedding and a funeral and the two emotions that generally go with it. One would be joyful dancing and the other would be mourning. And so they say of Jesus, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. In other words, he's saying that this generation neither rejoices nor Uh, mourns that this is a generation without a sense of understanding to the ultimate purpose of what Jesus came to do. He said, you have some people who don't rejoice, though they should be rejoicing, and, and because the arrival of Jesus has come, and there are others, you did not mourn, though they should be mourning over their sin. He uses this wedding and these funeral terms to communicate the the characteristic of the generation in which Jesus is ministering. In verse 18, Jesus continues on. You'll notice that the rest of this 11th chapter is all in red. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, this is Jesus speaking. He says, verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Again, he's talking about the, the people of his day. They are saying these things about John, and notice what they say about Jesus. Verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. So Jesus says, okay, people have this one view of John the Baptist, and they have another view also of Jesus, neither of which is right. He says, on the one hand, they say about John the Baptist that he came neither eating nor drinking, but yet they say he has a demon because it's easier to dismiss the message of John the Baptist than to fall under the conviction of the message of John the Baptist. So we'll just dismiss him by saying he has a demon, even though he came not eating or drinking, not, not uh, partying, in other words. And yet Jesus says, but the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, well, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they dismiss Jesus as well. And notice, by the way, the inference here is that, in fact, Jesus did drink. 
he had occasion where he might have taken alcohol because it says the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they then accuse him that he's a glutton and a drunkard. Now, I, I don't mean by this reference to the fact that the implication here is that Jesus had alcohol to embitter those of you with a Baptist background or to embolden those of you with an Episcoholic background. Um, some people will look at this and they will say, see, Jesus had alcohol here and this is why I party because, you know, it was okay with Jesus, it's okay with me. I just want to do as Jesus did. Do you? You want to do as Jesus did? Okay, that's great. Okay, so right off in the margin of your Bible there, Matthew 26, verse 29. Matthew 26, 29. And you can flip there if you'd like or you can just listen because in Matthew 26, Jesus is sharing the last Passover meal with his disciples And he makes a statement about alcohol and about anything related to the fruit of the vine in Matthew 26, 29. He says this, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So if you really want to be as Jesus was then Matthew 26, 29 also applies to you because that was his last and final statement about alcohol as far as it related to his own personal conviction, not not celebrating, not drinking, not having anything of the vine until that day when we are united, his second coming, the glorious reunion of the church with the bride of Jesus where we are the bride with the groom Jesus. And then there will be great reason for celebration. But don't look at this verse back here in Matthew 11 and say, well, this is a license and liberty to just get wasted on Friday nights because uh, Jesus was certainly not, not that. And Jesus adds here, back in Matthew 11, but wisdom is proved right by your actions. So, in other words, let people say what they might about John the Baptist, though the assessment is wrong, and let people say what they did about Jesus, though their assessment is wrong, but the ultimate evidence is in the fruit. The ultimate evidence, wisdom is proved right by her children. The ultimate evidence for who John the Baptist was is the life that he lived. The ultimate evidence for who Jesus is is the life that he lived and the fruit of his life and of his ministry. Wisdom is proved right by our actions. It doesn't matter what people think of you. What matters is the life that you are living and the legacy that you will leave. That's what matters. That's what really ultimately defines you. It doesn't merely matter what other people say. It's the life that you live for the glory of God. It's the fruit that you produce in honor of the Lord. Well, in verse 20, it says, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. He's going to denounce these cities, and he's going to name them here, in which, notice again, most of his miracles had been performed. And the reason he denounces them is because he performs most of his miracles among these cities, and yet they did not repent. Verse 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin, this is the first of the three cities. Woe to you, Bethsaida, that's the second. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, here's the third town, Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. And the uh, literal word for depths there in the Greek is Hades, hell. 
if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Very, very strong statements that Jesus makes against these three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, just to give you a little perspective, here is a map that shows you the, the uh, approximate locations of these uh, ancient uh, towns. We, we know them now today by the ruins that remain because of archaeological digs. So on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, you have Chorazin to the uh, furthest north, and then uh, almost directly south of Chorazin is Capernaum, right on the Sea of Galilee, which was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry for the three years of his public ministry. And then on the other northern part, on the eastern side, but still on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, is the uh, town of Bethsaida. That's where Peter was from and his brother Andrew and Philip. They were fishermen from the town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida in Hebrew translates uh, house of fish, Bethsaida. So it's a fisherman's village. Now, if you notice, these three towns here, uh, they are joined together in this little triangular area that encompasses about 1.8 square miles. That's all. About 1.8 square miles between these three towns. This is the location in which Jesus performed most of his miracles. Think about the entire planet. And in less than two square miles, most of the ministry, most of the miracles of Jesus occurred. His ministry too, for that matter, but specifically his miracles occurring within less than a two square mile area. So of all people on the planet during that time who should have been convicted and moved to repentance because they should have been awestruck by the mighty miracles of Jesus, instead, they weren't. And because of that, Jesus says they'll be accountable. He says if the miracles that were performed in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which were heathen cities in the day, he said those people would have repented. It'll be better for the people of Tyre and Sidon than it will be for the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he adds also about Capernaum, his home base. He says, woe to you, Capernaum. Will you be lifted up to the skies? You think you're going to be lifted up to heaven? The people of that day who witnessed more miracles of Jesus than any other people? He says, no, it's, it's going to be better for the people of Sodom. And how many times do we think about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis and kind of write them off as the most evil, wicked people? Jesus actually says, not as wicked as the people of Capernaum, comparatively speaking, when you consider the fact that more miracles are performed for the people of Capernaum, and they did not repent. Had the people of Sodom and Gomorrah seen the mighty hand of God in such a way that the people of Capernaum did, they would have repented, and it would be better for them. And Jesus even adds, it'll be better for the people of Sodom on the day of judgment than for the people of Capernaum in the day when they beheld all these miracles of Jesus. Now, this is one of the spots when we go to Israel and we stop at Capernaum. It's just ancient ruins today. We don't go to Chorazin and Bethsaida typically. I've taken some groups there depending on the the travel and and the trip and the day and where we are and the timing. But I will tell you this, Chorazin and Bethsaida are also just ruins. Nothing there today. The indictment of Jesus is evidenced by the fact that these three towns are completely barren today. 
No life, just ruins. People who beheld the greatest miracles of our Savior, and yet they did not repent. Jesus says it'll be better for the sinners of Tyre and Sidon, it'll be better for the sinners of Sodom, and for those of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Very amazing. What is the Lord doing in your own life that sometimes you might overlook? Do we have eyes to see the mighty ways that God is at, is at work in our lives? Don't dismiss the great and the little ways that God will do his wonderful things in your life. Let it be a constant reminder of his goodness and his grace towards you. And don't ever neglect giving him praise and worship for the many ways that he is at work. Well, in verse 26, Jesus said, verse 25, rather, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Look, Jesus is saying, some people are just too smart for their own good, that they can't accept Jesus by faith, because in order to accept Jesus, you have to humble yourself like a little child. And some people intellectually have eliminated themselves by virtue of the fact that they would rather rely on their own intelligence than to accept by faith that God is greater. That some people just, if if you just can't intellectually figure things out, then I'm I'm just not going to submit. I'm just not going to surrender. But a relationship with Jesus requires a bit of humility and recognizing that he is great and we're not as smart as we think we are. Now, you know, and I think about some pretty smart people in the world. Uh, one guy that comes to mind as far as being learned and educated for sure is uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking. He was uh, graduated with first-class honors degree in physics from University of Oxford. He began his studies at Oxford at the age of 17. He uh, has a Ph.D. in cosmology from the University of Cambridge that he was awarded at the age of 23, he has 11 honorary doctorate degrees. University of Chicago, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, to name a few. Okay, really smart guy. Well, in 1988, he wrote a book called A Brief History of Time, and he actually made recognition for the fact that there has to be, when he studies the cosmos as a physicist and a cosmologist, when he, when he studies the cosmos and the expanse of the universe, smart guy begins to realize all this stuff didn't just happen by chance. So in 1988, Dr. Hawking said this from his book, A Brief History of Time. He said, one can imagine that God created the universe at literally any time in the past. On the other hand, if the universe is expanding, there may be physical reasons why there had to be a beginning. One could still believe that God created the universe at the instant of the Big Bang. He could even have created it at a later time in just such a way as to make it look as though there had been a Big Bang. End quote. He's he's making room for the fact that there has to be some acknowledgement of God in the universe. Well, unfortunately, as time went on, he got smarter and smarter, and uh, unfortunately, it began to work against him, because then 22 years later, he writes a book called The Grand Design in 2010, and in that book, he said this, quote, "'Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing.'" Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist, 
It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper, which is like a fuse or an explosive, and set the universe going. He went on further to say in an interview in 2010, he said, quote, I believe the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization that there probably is no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that, I am extremely grateful, end quote. Here's an example of somebody who's very learned, very smart, very educated, and yet seems to have regressed because the older he got, uh, the less humble he became to acknowledge the grand designer behind creation. And so this is the kind of person Jesus is talking about here. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. That the humble, those who are meek, those who humble themselves, they will understand. They will inherit the earth. Verse 27, Jesus said, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He says, come to me. This is a great verse. Many of you probably have this underlined. He says in verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I was talking to an agrarian culture. These people were very familiar with the ways of farming. And Jesus here talks about being yoked, as in harnessed, to usually oxen together. And there would be usually an oxen that was more mature, leading one that kind of had to learn the ropes. So they would plow together, they'd be harnessed together. But if you hooked up the wrong oxen with the wrong oxen, then it would just be dragging that thing along, and the big one would just be uh, uh, dragging the little one along, and it would be uncomfortable, it would be abrasive, it would be chafing, and it would just be miserable for the other oxen that was trying to learn. Jesus says, look, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, if you join yourself to me, you will find that it will not be a miserable experience, it will be a restful experience. Because when you are connected and harnessed and yoked with Jesus, you will find rest for your souls. There's nothing like being harnessed with the Lord and allow Him to lead, allow Him to teach, allow Him to guide, to direct our lives, and we will find the great measure of rest that comes from being yoked with Jesus. The invitation is to all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Chapter 12, Jesus, uh, it says this, At that time, verse 1, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And remember that there were strict laws and regulations on the Sabbath. Not necessarily what God had imposed, but what man had imposed. The Jews began to compile a commentary on the laws of God called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah became a written compilation of commentaries on the law 
which in other words would define and expand upon the law of God. The Mishnah began being compiled around the year 200 B.C., 200 years before Christ, and they finished compiling the Mishnah about 135 A.D. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This unique perspective on Jesus' life gives you a glimpse into the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the true King above all kings. Jesus' greatest act while on earth was to give His life to pay for the sins of every person. That includes you. If you're ready to step away from your mistakes and failures and embrace a new life, Jesus is ready for you. His grace is enough. You can come to Him no matter what your past looks like. Would you like someone to pray with you? Or do you have some more questions? We'd love to talk to you. Please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online. And you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. There, you can also hear additional messages from the series in Matthew or others that Pastor Gary has shared. Again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know